0: All right, what was that movie? (laughs) National Treasure, all right. And uh, if you never saw the movie, that may not have totally made sense. But of course, the whole movie has all kinds of tension as a guy is going after his dream of finding a treasure. And uh, he's being, of course, chased by the bad guys. And he's alienated from his father in the movie. And there's this girl that he kind of likes, but they're just colliding. And at the end of the movie, everything comes together. And all of a sudden, he's found his treasure, and the threat to his life is eliminated. He reconciles with his dad. He marries the girl of his dreams. And he becomes a wealthy guy. And when we look at that, you might think, I would think, man, that is living the life. I mean, that is the life. If you're talking about what you're aiming for, what you're trying to to seal into your life, what you pursue... That's not bad. That's not bad for a day's work, is to have something like that. And in this series, the reason that we bring that up is because this series is about life. What is the life in your mind? What is the life you're trying to live? What is it that motivates you? How do you make decisions? What relationships do you develop or not develop? What would you say brings value to your life? Because whether you ask that question in a really open, sort of, uh, you know, openly ask it, or if you just sort of are working with thoughts in your mind where you have some ideas about how that goes, the reality is you're hugely motivated by that question. What is the life? What is the life I'm trying to live? Now, different people, of course, answer that different ways. And in fact, you may not have one single answer. So for a lot of people, uh, they would say, well, it's having a certain amount of money. It's, uh, it's maybe being wealthy. It's maybe having the house on the ocean. For other people that are more career-oriented, they, they would say, maybe it's having the center office. I want to be you know, the man or the woman at my profession. I want to be known in my field as being the very best at what I do. Uh, there's a bunch of guys that I play basketball with. I tell you about them from time to time. They are great guys. I love them. Uh, but uh, what comes to mind when I think about them as an old beer commercial, uh, it's these guys that are hanging around at the end of a day of uh, hiking around. They're down by this beautiful sort of lake, river, and the sun is going down, and they're frying steaks, and they're just sitting around and talking, and uh, one of them says, you know, life just couldn't get any better. And then it says, and all of a sudden... You know, Charlie found some gold, holds up this big chunk of gold that's as big as his fist. And then all of a sudden, the Swedish bikini skydiving team started landing around them. And so you see these women parachuting in. You can sort of picture maybe what they look like. And they're all of a sudden dancing. And they're bringing this, of course, this brand of beer. And they're all, you know, when the commercial ends, they're all just dancing around. It's like, I thought life couldn't get any better, but I guess it could. And I think that's kind of the way that some of the guys I play basketball with. I think that might be their answer to that question. What is the life? What is really the life? Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, that sounds so superficial, the way that Kevin's describing that. And not that I wouldn't want any of those things, but I would like to think life is a little more substantial than that. And so maybe your answer is, you know, as long as I can have good health, as long as I've just got good health, I'd be happy with that. As long as I can have a good, loving, unified family, that would, be, that would be more than enough for me. You know, maybe it's I would like to build a career, but I'd like to do it with integrity and good uh, virtues and, you know, sort of a value-based life that, you know, whether it's successful or not, I can point to that and say, hey, I did it the right way. As long as I could do that, that would be life for me. Well, today we're going to look at a story where a guy comes to Jesus and he basically says, tell me how I can know that I'm living the life. Uh, Reinforce for me either that I'm on the right track or tell me something that will get me on the right track because I have kind of the sneaking suspicion that I'm not exactly where I need to be. And uh, the story is told in Mark Chapter 10, and incidentally, if you don't have Bibles, we have people with Bibles, just raise your hand. We're going to bring some of it up on the screen, but it's always great to look at a Bible. Just raise your hands, we'll give you a Bible. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to look at sort of this surprising story. And uh, we're going to see how Jesus answered the question what is the life? What is the life that we should be pursuing? How does that work as he interacts with this guy? Now, this story takes place. Jesus is near the end of his ministry. In fact, he's walking from Galilee down to Jerusalem, about a hundred-mile walk, with his disciples for the last time. He's never going to leave Jerusalem. That's where he's going to die. And so the guys have been with him for a while. They've been constantly surprised by things that he's said and things that he's done. This story is going to surprise them as much as anything else that's happened. And as he's going along, this guy runs up to him, and we pick it up. In verse 17, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, you all have your Bibles, we all good? All right, let's read this together, just so that I know we're on the same page. It said, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now, this, you know, you would just think, okay, so we're just sort of giving the setting of the story. The reality is, there's some details here that are very important to the story, Also, this story is told in two of the other Gospels. It's told in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. For those of you that aren't super familiar with the Bible, Jesus' story, basically, his biography, is told in four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those stories, three of those biographies on Jesus, tell this story. They all add certain details. So, for instance, Matthew tells us that this guy was young. Wasn't an older guy, he was a young guy. It actually becomes kind of uh, important later in the story. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And what probably he meant, although it's not explicitly stated, is that he was a ruler in a synagogue, which in that day, a church, in that day was a very important position. Um, you, you know, in, for Judaism, being a religious leader was a big deal. And so this guy is probably a Jewish leader of a synagogue. He is young, and all three of the stories tell us that he's very wealthy, that he has property, that he has standing, that he's well-respected in the community, that all the things that sort of go along with wealth are true of him. And so this guy comes up to Jesus, and as we read, he doesn't just come, he actually runs. And he doesn't just run, he actually bows down, he kneels down. And that's very important in the story, because in that day and age, people who were wealthy... Male leaders never ran. In that society, that was considered below someone of that status. There was an amount of dignity, and that was a a shame, honor-oriented society. There was an amount of dignity that people with the kind of standing that this guy had needed to carry, and running was definitely a no-no. Definitely you don't run. Other people run to him. Other people do what he's, other people bow down to him. He does not run and he does not bow down. And so, as this story is told, Mark is quick to point out listen, this guy was coming up and there was some urgency. There was a crisis that this guy was dealing with. This crisis was so substantial that he actually broke with protocol. He actually decided that holding his dignity wasn't the most important thing. He had to have an answer to a question. It was just burdening him to the point where he said, I don't care if I look like a fool. I don't care if this is a little shameful. I've got to get an answer to this question. And it's interesting, just if we pull back from the story, how much this guy's life we can relate to. And here's what I think. Life tends to crash in to the dream of the life we want. Sort of as Jairus was saying, those two things collide. And so for those of us that might think something like, you know, having a certain amount of wealth or security and money, maybe a certain amount of retirement that's saved away, if we believe that that is the life, or at least a major portion of the life that we want, there's such an interesting thing that happens, which is, you know what happens? Life collides with that. All of a sudden, it gets threatened. All of a sudden, we go into a double-dip recession. And that retirement that you thought, this is gold, this is setting me apart, this is giving me security, this is everything that I need, all of a sudden, it's cut in half. All of a sudden, the job that we thought we couldn't possibly lose, nothing could happen to it, goes away all of a sudden some kind of medical situation arises and all the savings that we put away, all the diligence that we had evaporates. And life crashes in to the life. You know, Maybe it has to do with a family and you'd always dreamed of a certain family and then your kids hit teenage years. And all of a sudden it's like, this dream is not turning out the way that I thought. I, I thought it was going to be different than this. And it's not. Or you think you've married a certain type of woman and then you find out that she would tell a cheap lie for $500 (laughs) on Ellen. And all of a sudden you're like, that's not what I thought it was all about. (laughs) Oh, we have so much fun. Okay, so anyway, these things kind of occur, these things happen and all of a sudden life collides with with the life. And if it's bad enough, if it hurts enough. All of a sudden, dignity is not so important to us. We need an answer. We need help. We need some kind of avenue to move on at this point. And that's what happens to this guy. This guy's like, I've got to have an answer. So what is the crisis in his life? What is he so concerned about? In some ways, we never find out the exact details of what drove him to Jesus. But we do learn the big picture of what happens. And so in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, he runs up to Jesus He bows down before him, and he says these words. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except for God. Now, it's interesting, this title that uh, this young ruler uses for Jesus, teacher, is actually kind of a unique title. It is not used a lot. Uh, It's almost never used of Jesus. Teacher is not a commitment to have Jesus as Lord. It's just recognizing that he might have some wisdom or some advice that would be helpful. And it's very interesting because as the story plays out, what we know is Jesus gives him some advice, and does this guy take it? He doesn't take it, and you're going to see that at the end of the story. He doesn't take the advice. And so it's interesting that Mark makes sure to present in the story that he calls him teacher, not Lord, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say, but I'm not necessarily committing to follow it. We'll we'll weigh it out. We'll see if this is something I want to do. But he comes and he calls him good teacher. And this is so interesting. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus pushes back on that? The guy comes up, he's just giving Jesus a compliment. Good teacher. And what does Jesus say? He says, Why are you calling me good? And you're like, I don't know. I just I just thought you were kind of a good guy. I thought you'd like that. Why are you pushing against me on that? I'm just saying, good teacher. And Jesus says, don't you know no one's good except for God? He's like, oh, my gosh, you know, what? Did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? What's the big deal about that? I'm just giving you a compliment. But, you know, Jesus, of course, didn't walk, work, uh, wake up on the wrong side of the bed. What happens is Jesus is saying, you're using this term too loosely. You're using good too lightly. You don't really know me, and you don't really know if I'm good. And good, uh, this, this particular word for good is closer to sort of like perfection, perfect teacher. And so Jesus pushes back and he says, you don't know me. Why would you call me good? You're using this word too lightly. And here's the reason is because this guy's going to use that adjective for himself in just a couple of minutes. As this conversation goes out, he's going to say, you're a good teacher. And guess what? I'm a good man. We can talk as two guys that are really good because that's who we are. You're the good teacher. I'm the good man. And Jesus is going to say, I think we should look at that word good and just make sure that we're not using that too lightly because that could be part of your problem. You think you're better than you actually are. So he pushes back on that. And this would have been a surprise to the disciples because here's what the disciples would have said. If this guy doesn't have it together, if this guy doesn't have it right, if this guy is asking for eternal life and Jesus is going to push against that, then their whole concept of what it meant to be a godly person is being turned upside down. Because in that culture, in Judaism, there was a thought that if somebody was wealthy, they were blessed by God. If somebody was the leader of a synagogue, that guy was clearly blessed by God. If that guy had the moral standing that he brags about in just a minute, that guy is clearly blessed by God. I mean, he's three for three, the three most important things that any Jew would say. Hey, if you want the blessings of God, you will see it in your wealth. You will see it in the position of being a leader in the church. And you're going to see it in your obedience to the law. And if you can do those things, you have got the life You have got the life. So the fact that he asked the question, how may I have eternal life? This would have been surprising to the disciples because they'd say, hey, pal, if you don't have it, nobody's got it. I mean, you're on the inside track to the life that God has to offer. Now, this idea of eternal life is something that is relatively new in the New Testament. In other words, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of talk about life, but it's rarely eternal life. Eternal life is a life that starts here and now. You're all living an eternal life of some sort. You're all living an eternal life of some sort. It starts right now, and it goes on for eternity. The eternal life. All of us are eternal beings. All of us live an eternal life. This guy, when he says it, when he says the eternal life, he's talking about the good eternal life. In other words, I want to start a life that I know is going to move on through this whole earthly life of me and then move beyond into what we would call heaven, that I want to make sure that that's the track I'm on. And what he's saying here is he's like, I'm not so sure. I don't know that I'm on that track. Here's what uh, Jesus responds to him in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And then he responds, teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. All right, that's a list of rules. Where does that list come from? A famous bigger list called the Ten Commandments. How many are on this list? Just count them up. How many do we have right there? Somebody's saying it. Six. We got six of them. Uh, Do you know, it's very interesting, that Moses, when he brought the Ten Commandments down, they came down on how many tablets? Two. Uh, Were they split five and five? No, six and four. Uh, Now, we do it five and five because we like symmetry, but they actually came down four and then uh, six more. The first four had to do with your relationship with, a little test here, Your relationship with God. Second six have to do with your relationship with other people. What six are on this list? Other people. He does really right by other people. Isn't it interesting? None of the first four are on that list. Jesus points out that this guy's living a life where sure everyone else would say, This guy's godly this guy's virtuous this guy's selfless this guy's amazing look at how he treats people Jesus looks at it and it's not that he doesn't admire the man for those things those are great things but what does Jesus notice the absence of where's your relationship with God I mean if you want eternal life it's not enough just to be a really nice person to other people It isn't even enough just to be the person of integrity or the person that puts other people first. Those are great people to be around. Don't get me wrong. I like being around people like that. I want neighbors like that. You know, I want my family members to be like that. I want you as a church to be like that because that makes me feel really good when we're all treating each other so well. It's not bad. It's just not quite enough because there's a foundational element that is so important here to get if you really want the life God has to offer. It has to do with the first four. The first four are meant to be the foundation of the next six. Well, this man sizes this up, and he says, you know, Jesus, like I said, you're the good teacher. I'm the good guy. I've been doing these things since I was a boy. Jesus looks at him with a very discerning eye, and this next part of the story is so interesting, and we always get it wrong. I'll just tell you, you're uncomfortable with the way this story turns, not because you care a lick about this guy, but because you start to wonder, oh my gosh, is that what he thinks about me? Is this what Jesus thinks about me? Is this what Jesus is going to tell me to do? This really makes me nervous. I don't like this at all. This is, as the story goes, it says these words. It says, Jesus looked at him and did what? Loved him. Now, this is an important thing, because Jesus is not trying to drive this guy away. How the story ends was not what Jesus anticipated. Well, he may have anticipated, because he's like the omniscient, sovereign, holy lord of the universe. He probably knew how this thing was going to turn out. But it's not what he wanted to have happened. It's not what he was hoping for boy, I'll make this guy look like an idiot and he'll run away from me. That's not what Jesus is doing. In fact, right here it says, listen, I'm going to take you at face value. I really believe that you want a life that you don't currently have. I'm going to take that at face value. So this advice I'm about to give you is not meant to curse you. It's not even meant to test you. It is meant to give you exactly what you said you wanted, which was an eternal life, the life. You want a life that is abundant and full, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you how to do that. So he says to him, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. And uh, as the story plays out, uh, he says these words to him. "Go Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So here's what this sounds like to me, okay? And just see if this is how it sounds like to you. It's like, you're pretty good. You do pretty good. You nail six out of the Ten Commandments. That's better than most people. Most people can't even name them. I'm pretty happy with that. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you're sort of up in the you know, Navy SEAL category, but do you want to be the elite of the elite? Let me give you something that I would give very few people, this thing, because they couldn't handle it, but maybe you can handle it. I'm going to give you this amazing spiritual challenge. Let's see if you'll do it. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Leave your life of comfort, of prestige. Leave your life of security as you know it. Leave all of that behind and become a traveling religious zealot with us and and God will smile on that sacrifice. You will get a life that you can't dream of. If you'll just do that kind of a thing. And that's how, for so long, I read that. And of course, then the question comes, right? Shouldn't you do it? Isn't that something you should do? Isn't Jesus giving an answer to any person's question of what do I need for eternal life? Well, sell your car, sell your house, give all the proceeds to the poor, You know, move into some commune, leave your work, maybe leave your family, do all those things and prove to God without a shadow of a doubt that you love him, that you're committed to him. There's a certain life you can't get unless you just make that kind of a commitment. The one thing you lack, Jesus would say, is you've gone pretty far, but you've not gone all the way. And that's what I want today. Today, I want you to go all the way. I want you all in. Cards on the table. You're pushing it to the middle. You're betting your life on this. I want to see that kind of commitment because without that kind of commitment, I can't bless your life. And we look at that and we go, oh my gosh, I feel bad for that guy, but I'm a little nervous about me. Is that what Jesus wants? Is that what the life is about? But here's the deal. I think we look at that phrase in the wrong way. I don't think Jesus is saying one thing you lack, you've done a lot of good things, but you have one more thing you've got to do. I think this is what he's saying. He's saying you have a lot of blessings in your life, but you lack a really important part of the blessing. You have a lot of good things. And in fact, a reason for it is because you've done things God's way. And you have a lot of good things but there's still a good thing, a good part of life, maybe the most important part of life that you lack. And so Jesus looks at him in love and he says, so let me tell you what that is. And when you look at this huge sacrifice that Jesus is asking to make, and I'll just tell you that Jesus did not see this as a sacrifice. You know why? Because in his mind, what the guy was going to get was so much better that this wasn't a sacrifice at all. When Jesus says, come follow me, who else had Jesus said that to? The disciples, right? That was his line. He says it to Peter and John and James, says it to Andrew, he says it to the guys, he even says it to Judas, says, come follow me. So let me just ask you, as you look at the lives, not that that was an easy life that they chose, but what would that have been like? Have you ever wondered what that would be like? to walk around with Jesus for three years. Do you think that those guys might have been the most blessed people that ever lived? I mean, really think about actually walking around with Jesus, actually having him pull you aside to give you a lesson, actually having fun with him, watching the miracles firsthand. Amazing. That's what Jesus is offering this guy. He's saying, I'm offering a seat on the bus of discipleship. You can come and be with me. What he's offering is his presence. He's saying, you want life? The greatest life I could offer you, the best thing you could get, is to be with me. That's the best. It's the best I can give you. I'm loving you by saying this. Jesus doesn't look at it as a sacrifice. (laughs) Jesus looks at it as this amazing gift that he did not Invite everyone, too. Do you think this guy sees it that way? I don't think so. Because the story uh, sort of winds up with maybe the last surprise, maybe the surprise to Jesus. The guy looks at everything he has, and he goes, it's not worth that. Your presence is not worth me shaking up my life not worth me giving some of this stuff away, maybe all of it away. It's not worth my position in the synagogue. It just isn't. And he walks away, it says, sad. And here's the important thing, or the lessons that we need to take, or that we can take, from this story. These are lessons that I personally, I struggle with these lessons. This week, I knew this was coming at you. So I've been wrestling with this this whole week. Here's the first lesson that we learned. It really does matter who you ask about life. It really does make a difference, because different people have different answers to that. Uh, Oprah's going to have a different answer than a Dr. Phil, probably. Um, If you talk to uh, your parents, they will probably have a different answer than if you come and talk to the guys that I play basketball with. I just imagine they'll have different answers to that question. What is the life? What's the life that you should be pursuing or living? Here's what's so important. It's our responsibility to go to the right source. It's our responsibility to go and talk with the person who's going to give us the best advice. In this series, we're going to go to Jesus. We're in a church. That's who we want to talk to. We're going to go to Jesus. So we're going to spend the next several weeks asking Jesus, what is this life that you're offering and how do I step into it? He's going to be our teacher for this time. And some of you are saying, great, I've already bought in. He's not just teacher to me. He's also Lord. Some of you are sitting here and you you might say, just like this guy, he's just my teacher now. I haven't committed to anything, but I'll listen. I'll listen. Great. That's who we're going to listen to. It's our responsibility to pick the right person to pick a person that can actually lead us to life. So Jesus is going to be our guide over the next few weeks. Here's the second thing. We tend to simplify what the good life is. And the reality is, it is more complicated than just a one-word answer. It really is. And we get into all kinds of trouble. So let me ask you a question. And maybe don't respond out loud because you'll probably respond uh, respond wrongly, and I don't want anyone embarrassed here, uh, because I want you to come back. Is prosperity a blessing from God? Is it part of the life that he promises? Prosperity. And by prosperity, I mean success in this world. Money, job, family, things that we pursue... Most of our lives, you're going to walk out of here and for the next 180 hours this week, you're going to be more focused on those things probably than a lot of the stuff we talked about in here. And then you'll come back and we'll refocus and you'll, you'll think about other things. Question is, is that part of the life? From this story, what would you say? You're still not going to answer from this story, you would say no, right? Because Jesus said, give it all away. How many people did Jesus say this to? Some of you know the New Testament. Some of you know the Gospels. How many people did he come and he said, I want you to sell everything you have and come and follow me? How many people did he do that with? Did he even say that to his disciples? I don't think so. In fact, Matthew had a party at his house after he became a Christian. How did he do that? How did he still have a house? Didn't he have to give that away? Here's what's so important. We can go on two ways. We can say prosperity is the whole thing. The whole blessing that God has for us has to do with prosperity and success and all those things. Or we can go the other way and say that has nothing to do with it. In fact, it's evil. It's wrong. It's bad. I should become a monk. I should sell it all and move away from it all. And here's the problem. Christianity becomes irrelevant to somebody that thinks that because most people won't make that commitment. So they just say, okay, Christianity has nothing to do with my day-to-day life. And the reality is, Jesus says, it has everything to do with your day-to-day life, and your prosperity is not a problem for me, though it can be a problem for you. Another answer that we give very often is that it's all about peace, having inner peace. You know, whether we have a lot or have a little, we want to be content. We want to have peace. We want to have peace regardless of our circumstances. We want to have peace in our own soul about who we are as a person. We want to have the peace of knowing that when we die, we've got an eternal, heavenly, incredibly great place that we're going to. And that puts everything into perspective for me. We want a peace like that. And here's the truth of it. Is that part of it? Is that part of the life that God comes to give us? And the answer is, absolutely, absolutely. Doesn't David talk about, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, you are with me, I have peace. Didn't Jesus promise peace to his followers on the last night of his life? I'll give you peace. Doesn't Paul talk about a peace that transcends understanding? It goes beyond your circumstances, transcends understanding. Of course, peace is part of it. Is peace all of it? It is not all of it. Otherwise, we would all be told, become a monk, move to the desert, and live a life of peace. But peace is not all of it. And what it all revolves around is what we're going to focus on in this series is presence, is Jesus' presence. Because here's the reality. Jesus says, it is my presence that becomes the foundation of this life. Is it prosperity too? Yes, it can be prosperity. Jesus can be in your prosperity. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that next week. How is Jesus in my prosperity? Isn't it evil? No. Jesus can be in that. Is Jesus in your peace? Well, I don't even know you can get to peace without Jesus being present. But Jesus would say, I've got to be in the center of that. You get peace because you are connected to me. Because there's intimacy with me. Because of the power that works through me. The perspective that I give. That's where your peace comes from. And so the last thing that we learn about this is the wise person. Here's the wise person. The wise person always recognizes what's most valuable and trades up for it, and trades up for it. So here was what Jesus did. Jesus looked at this guy that had all of these things, but what was he lacking? He was lacking in his relationship with God. So Jesus says, listen, here's your trade-up. Your prosperity is in your way. To real life. So I'm going to tell you, sell it. Get rid of it. Come and follow me. Here's the deal, pal. You can't follow me unless you get rid of it because our donkey won't pull your U-Haul. You can't put all your stuff and bring it along with you. That's not this life. You can't rule the synagogue and come with me. Jesus isn't saying, prove your love. He's just offering him an invitation to say, come along, trade up. I'm telling you, the trade up, pal, is that you get to come with me. You know, it's such an interesting thing. We know all the disciples' names. Do we know this guy's name? No. He moves into obscurity, as far as we know. Jesus was giving him such, and Jesus is just saying, trade up, trade up. This week, as you think about your life and you put the different pieces in it, now there's some things that are clearly outside of God's boundary. If you find life by, you know, getting drunk every night and going and sleeping around and being dishonest at work and just, you know, stealing things, okay, that's not the life. But I bet that's not most of you. I bet most of you are not dealing with that, you know, addictions, things like that. Maybe some, but, and, but even if it's addictions, you'd say, I know that's not what I should be doing. Most of what you deal with is good stuff. Trying to be an honest person, treating people the way you'd want to be treated, believing in God, loving Jesus maybe. Here's what I'm saying. Always ask yourself this question. Am I trading up? Am I trading for the next thing that God wants to do in my life? Am I taking the most important thing? And ultimately, that's always going to be Jesus' presence. And that's what this series is about. How do we get Jesus' presence? How do we, in a day-to-day existence, do it? All right? So that's what you're signing on for. You ready to sign on for that? Okay. All right. Good. So let me tell you how this book and and how this series sort of lines out, and then we'll start walking through it. Here's the first thing. Uh, When I was growing up, I lived in a three-story house, and uh, the main floor was the typical main floor of the house. It's where we lived 90% of the time. All the activities of life went Golden West was so great because they built us a set for this series. So if you just want to consider that this is sort of like this bedroom, it's sort of like the main floor of your house. It is where you do your daily life. It's the things that take up almost all of your thinking. It's when you walk out of here, you'll move right into the main floor and start doing all the things, family, work, money, exercise, all the things that go with it. All right, so you have a main floor. God's very interested in how you work on your main floor we can get really messed up on the main floor. And so we're going to spend next week talking about it. In the book, you'll read some chapters on it. How do we handle the main floor in a way that God would say, this is great. You're living the life. You're living the life. Uh, There's another part of our lives that... I have to sort of walk over here. Uh, And this is the best we can do, sorry, because they didn't really follow exactly our specifications. We wanted a full basement. All we got was the basement door. But... Uh, There is a basement that we all live in. The basement is the part of our life where we do things we know we shouldn't do. And I'll give you a secret about the people sitting around you. They all have a basement. Whoa, I know you're uncomfortable now because you're like, oh my gosh, all these people have a basement? Yeah, we all have a basement. We all have things we shouldn't do. We all have things we're ashamed of. We all have secrets that if it came out, if all of a sudden I said, hey, I want to show you know, your basement, let me just bring this picture up on the screen, you would shudder to think of what would come up there. You'd know, but you'd shudder that other people would see it. Here's the deal. We've all got that. Now, I'm not saying we all live in the basement all the time. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have discipline. Sometimes we're doing well. But we have temptations toward the basement. So the question is, what does God do with our basement? Does he say clean it up on your own, get back to me when you can? Does he say, I don't care if you have a basement, just do whatever you want, it doesn't make any difference to me? How does he interact with us on our basement? It's a huge deal, because if we don't get that straight, we live with shame and guilt, and we never come out. We never come out. So we're going to talk about it. What does it mean that Jesus joins us in our basement issues? And then the final thing is we have an upper room, and I'm not going to walk up those steps in case I fall, Uh, but the upper room in our house was where my father had his study. He was a professor. He had his study up there, and one thing I always knew was upstairs was my dad. If I ever wanted to see him, ever wanted to talk with him, ever wanted to relate to him, I could just go up to his study, and he'd be there. And uh, the truth of the matter is we all have a connection to our Heavenly Father, Some of us, it's much more intimate than some of the rest of us. But there is a way that we relate with our Heavenly Father. Uh, The word that the Bible uses is called faith. And faith is a very scary thing for us. And it's mostly confusing, I think. I think most of us are confused by that phrase. We don't know if we have enough. We don't know really what that looks like. We don't know how to build it. And we're going to talk about that. Because you cannot relate to our Heavenly Father without faith. And we're going to talk about that. What does that mean? How do we do it? So we're going to go to the upper room, and we're going to focus on that. That's what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we go through life with God, because the issue is getting Jesus' presence into our life. That's always the source of life. It's Jesus' presence. It's Jesus with us. It's us interacting with him. And it's going to be a great journey. So let me just give you a couple of logistics, and then I'm uh, going to ask Jairus and the band to come up, and we'll, we'll sing our ways out of here. Uh, but here's some things that I think are important if we're going to do this and really have our lives change. What we've decided is we're going to give you several opportunities to participate in this series. So the first thing will be these messages. We want you to come and listen. Sign on to come for the next, uh, it'll be six weeks after this. It's a seven-week series. Come and just say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to get the whole package. I want to listen, and uh, that's the place to start is I'm going to commit to that. Uh, the second part of that is that we are going to give you readings. And they're out of the book uh, that I wrote, Life with God. They are meant to be about five-minute readings on a daily basis. And uh, like Julie said, if you can't afford the book, somebody has agreed to underwrite it for us. And uh, we don't want anyone not to, to participate because you don't have the book. And today is the day to start. Today is the day to start. So day one, you should read today. And we will follow through. Just as we go through the series, you're going to be keeping up with daily readings. And uh, let me just suggest this. At the end of each reading every day, so you'll read for five minutes, ask this question of Jesus. What did you want me to learn today? What is it, Jesus, since you're here, what is it you want to teach me today with this reading? And we'll talk about that then on Sundays. The third thing that we want you to do is to join a small group. Some of you are in small groups. If you are, you're going to study life with God. Some of you are in rooted groups. And uh, as soon as rooted ends, you're going to study life with God. Some of you aren't in groups. And we think it's so important to discuss this with other people. Here's what you're doing you're just signing on for the life of this, uh, for the length of this series. So you don't need to have these as your best friends for the rest of your life. It's just say, I'm going to get into a small group for the next few weeks. I'll meet some people and we'll discuss this thing. If you aren't in a group, Please go out and just sign up. Our staff has agreed. The the, the people that are on the staff here at at this church have agreed to lead those groups. So you'll be with somebody that you kind of know. And uh, we would love to invite you into that. So sign up and we'll we'll match you and we'll tell you they don't start this week, they start next week. So you have a little bit of time. We'd love to get you into our groups. Uh, We're going to ask you to memorize verses. Now, this is no obligation, it's just an opportunity. But there's something about memorizing certain verses. And the verse this week is where Jesus says, I have come to give you life to the full. I have come to give you life to the full. Is that a great verse to just have in your mind? And pretty easy. That's pretty easy. Even I can remember that. I have come to give you life in its fullness. Uh, The bookmarks actually have all the memory verses on it that you've got. Just start working on those. Those are going to really help you. And then the last thing is invite other people to come. There are people around you that need what we're talking about. They may not agree with us. They may not be exactly where you are or where we are. But this is such a great topic for people to talk about. So take the risk. Take the risk and invite. You've got invitations. Invite people to come. This is going to be a great series. All right. So why don't we uh, stand up? And I want to pray. And then, uh, Jairus, if you guys would play us out. And uh, we won't do a benediction, just play us out and dismiss us. Cool? Lord, thank you so much for your love to us. We thank you for this life that you give us. We recognize that it is a life that is beyond how we think most of the time. Just like the rich young ruler, we don't think that way. I pray that you would teach us to see it from your eyes and that we would grab onto it. Because it's an offer that we just can't refuse. Walk with us as we journey over the next few weeks. Teach us step by step. Help us to learn from each other. Lord, we want to be those people that don't miss out on anything that you offer. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.